we're delighted to let you know that the CL Podcasts are officially sponsored by our partners Rice Up. Rice Up, healthy and functional snacks. Welcome to Food for Thought, the CL Podcast. We will always need to eat, so farming and food processing will always have a future. But the changes impacting these sectors are huge. At a time of transitions, reinventions and global social responsibility, CL Paris is reaffirming its ambition by uniting food professionals around the major transformations taking place in the industry. I'm David Addison, and in this edition of Food for Thought, we will hear from Ian Dutullio of Accor on diversifying food and beverage in the hospitality industry. First, though, let's take a look at a couple of the industry headlines this week. As the Ukraine conflict puts pressure on supplies of grain, officials in Germany may restrict biofuel production so that more cereal and other crops can be used as food, reports indicate. According to a story in the German press, the restrictions are supported by the SDP, the Social Democratic Party, and the Green Party, which are members of the governing coalition headed by Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, launched in February, has pushed up food prices globally, especially of commodities such as wheat, which both Russia and Ukraine are major producers of. Indeed, CL Paris Newsroom reported last month that food prices had reached an all-time high, with cereals and vegetable oils helping to push up the prices of many other foods. France-based global wine and spirits maker Pernod Ricard enjoyed very strong sales in the first nine months of its fiscal year, 2022, but has warned that the global environment remains volatile and could impact its final quarter, ending June 2022. In the nine months to March, sales were up by 18%, reaching 8.41 billion euros, with an acceleration in Q3 to 20%. All percentages are organic, not reported. Among its key markets, India maintained strong growth at 19%, with the USA at 13%, while China at 12% was impacted by its COVID-19 resurgence, but also a high comparison basis from the same period last year. Although growth was described as excellent in Europe, Pernod Ricard has some other deceleration in March due to impacts of the war in Ukraine, which will continue. Other regions like Latin America, Africa, the Middle East and Asia, notably Korea and Japan, were also strong, while the travel retail channel was up by 33% as passenger traffic rose outside China. Now, let's turn to our industry interview for this edition of Food for Thought. Ian Dutullio is SVP of Guest Services at Accor Hotels, and Alex Outhwaite spoke to him about how the hospitality industry is reinventing food and beverage to diversify the model. So today I'm going to be chatting with Ian Dutullio, and Ian is the Chief Commercial Officer for Southern Europe at Accor. Ian holds a PhD in marketing from Cranfield University in the UK and has extensive global managerial knowledge, having managed several thousand employees across most continents. Hi, Ian. Great to have you today. Great to be here. Thank you. We're going to launch straight in and I want to know how is the hospitality industry reinventing itself through food and beverage? Well, I think it's uh, it's important to say that it's... Uh... It's a reinvention which takes roots on, in where the hospitality industry was historically strong. Mm-hmm. If we go back in time, uh, food and beverage was a significant ele- element of differentiation, right? Where in, in the hospitality world, if we kind of project ourselves back into, you know, the 20s and 30s, uh, people used to go to restaurants and hotels all the time. 
True. And so what unfortunately I think happened through the years is there was a commoditization of the hospitality sector, particularly around the economy and mid-scale sectors. Mm-hmm. And we almost forgot that, uh, that hospitality and food and beverage are actually completely synonymous with, with one another. And so we there was a refocus, of course, on, on generating value uh, per square meter on the rooms themselves, given the profitability of how these different managers assessed it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, we lost focus on the total revenue ma- you know, management model. And then fast forward, you know, uh, several several decades, and lo and behold, um, we were surprised to see that food and beverage and entertainment were massive drivers of occupancy and engagement and repeat visits in in hotels. And we find ourselves, you know, in, in the last twenty years, in, in in a significant resurgence of FNB as a vector of value creation that far exceeds, of course the pure restaurant or the bar, and starts positively impacting total hotel performance. So I, I almost see it as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a moment where we're going back and taking lessons from history and essentially moving forward with, with some of the new learnings that we've now gotten through digital, social media, and these new platforms on how to make F&B uh, a profitable vector again. Definitely some positive changes there, though. But do you think there were aspects that needed changing? Absolutely. Uh, I do believe that for a long, for, for several, you know, decades, we, we, we called them hotel restaurants. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with a hotel restaurant. There, there's several hotels, uh, and, and we all know some of them, which cater to the hotel guest. That is essentially their sole segment, uh, and, and it is a segment that need, they need to serve well. What we completely forgot about is the mission that many hotels have in catering to their local guests mm-hmm. and ensuring that the product that we put in front of those guests is adapted to their needs and an evolving market. And so some of the main changes that we're seeing is that we're now transforming some of these spaces into concepts which have an appeal beyond the hotel guests and actually become you know, uh, food and beverage brands unto themselves. Okay. And of course, whether it's in London, Dubai, Asia, uh, and the Americas and Lifestyle Hotel, we have several examples that illustrate that each of these outlets now becomes a destination, and that destination itself becomes a criteria of choice for the hotel. So that that implies ensuring that the staffing, um, the experience you receive, uh, must be a food and beverage designed and distributed experience. It should not be a hospitality-driven experience. And I think that change in or that change in mindset is quite critical to how you staff, how you build your menus, how you promote, how you build your brands, and how you go to market. If we look at challenges now, what challenges is the hospitality industry facing? I think hospitality and and uh, and food and beverage face similar challenges. I think that the first one, of course, is uh, is staffing. Staffing is by far the biggest challenge we all we all face. We're we're, we're short. Uh, roughly 30% of our workforce Wow! Uh, in, in both sectors combined, um, which, as you can imagine, um, implies some very difficult decisions in terms of opening hours, um, number of services that can be deployed, you cater to the outside guests and the, and the, and the, and the hotel guests. It's really forced us to make some, some unfortunate decisions in some cases. Uh, and I think ultimately it comes down to um, why are people getting into this business? Mm. Uh, I had an interesting conversation the other day on 
uh, with a, a wonderful panel of, of hoteliers that had, uh, you know, decades of experience. And hospitality and, and food and beverage have, have typically been uh, a, a social and professional elevator for years. So people could start, of course, uh, in, uh, in the front office, the back office, the restaurant, cleaning services, any any point of, uh, of, uh, of employment in the hotel and make their way up. This has been really, we have, you know, hundreds of stories of people that have become general managers and very senior uh, executives, but starting from the base, very similar to the airline world. Um, unfortunately, those stories are, are not as common these days because uh, there's been a shift to temporary workforce. There's been a shift to outsourcing. There's been a number of changes, which have, I think, negatively impacted the sector. Nevertheless, when you look at the sector as a whole, What's really important is to rewrite the storyline around uh, around uh, around what makes the sector appealing. It, there still very strongly remains an opportunity for the sector to be a professional and social elevator for for consumers. There is an incredible story to tell in terms of the purpose of the sector. People really still very strongly want to have want to be connected to the purpose of travel. And people want to be related to the experience economy. The, I mean, we are part of the experience economy. We are part of a sector which is significantly helping uh, transform, um, you know, the, the the CSR landscape. Notably around our commitments to reducing plastics. Notably around our commitments to reducing carbon footprints, while still remaining active in a sector that you and I and everyone still want to very much be part of our lives. Travel is something which connects the world which will never disappear, but responsible travel gives people an even stronger purpose to be part of a story that they want to be part of. So we need to rewrite the story. We need, we need to rebuild that elevator from ground up. And we need to tell people that the story is being rewritten. It's a superb sector to be part of. And the sector is transforming so that we start eliminating some of those factors of pain, which historically have been difficult. I mean, some of these shift uh, some of these shift the shifts are very very difficult. The, the the food staff, for example, I mean the restoration staff, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. they can start in the morning. Then they have three hours that is a bit of a dead period, so they they don't go back home. They kind of hang out uh, in in the hotel, the restaurant until the next service. So there's a tremendous amount of I would say um, um, painful uh, elements, which I think we need to also reconsider as we redesign the FNB and hospitality of the future. In terms of, uh, you said about people coming in in these base positions and, and moving up, is a call looking at ways to encourage people mm-hmm. to move up into management positions? We are. Uh, we are. We have, um, we have a, an academy, of course, which, uh, which helps train people and cross-train staff uh, across our hotels, head offices. So you, you, can, you can very, very simply see somebody starting as a, um, as a marketing manager, making their way into some of the more general management functions. You can see someone coming in into the food and beverage side and start getting cross-trained on elements that are complementary to their tasks. And so we have a number of modules that exist that allow us to train uh, many of our employees uh, and to cross-train them into other tasks, which allow them to build what I'd call bundles of skills that allow them then to transition to, into, their, into their next role, whether it's managerial or it's a lateral move into a, a complementary function. Yeah, that's really encouraging. Um, we are going to have to touch on the pandemic, of course. Do you think the pandemic has forced changes or at least made the industry look differently at things? Mm, of course. I mean, uh, 
I, I sure hope so, because it's. Uh, I think the pandemic has been an opportunity for us to reconsider um, the importance uh, the importance of, of of these different services. I mean, if anything, it's put a tremendous burden, financial burden, on our hotels and our and our partners. And so everyone is now reassessing what creates value. Uh, in the value chain, and so, and so, I, I think it's been a wonderful opportunity for everyone to realize what is a real value driver. What do, what can I do without? What is an absolute necessity? Where do I need to reinvest, and where do I need to disinvest? Uh, and so, what you can see is that many hotels are now reinvesting in their common areas and into their food and beverage outlets because it is a democratic zone, which of course uh, accrues value to many in the hotel without having to invest necessarily in the totality of uh, the room assets, uh, because those are, of course, extremely expensive, as you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, certainly, it's also been in a, a period where uh, we've, uh, we've also re-looked efficiency, how much, how much people do we actually need. In some cases, we were understaffed, surprisingly enough. In other cases, of course, we were overstaffed, or certainly we were not, uh, I would say, we were not enabling our staff to be productive. Uh, and I'll give you examples. I mean, the QR codes, and you love or hate them in terms of ordering. <laughs> yeah. um, but but what they do do, and I think I kind of look at the QR code as one aspect of a greater digital reality, allows you to accelerate the speed of training of staff. And That's so when you look at the digitization of that sector, what it does do is, is the way I see it, is you want to hire the best staff to deliver on the experience you want your concept to represent. Very similar to the hotel. If I can hire for that skill set and I can reduce the burden on training and operational requirements and technical requirements, that's magic. And I can get the best person to really drive incremental revenue and positive experience. So to me, that's where it's been incredibly positive because it's given us tools, certainly that require us to continue investing behind them, to start removing some of those pain elements and really focusing on the differentiating elements of the staff member versus differentiating the elements of the technology. So these changes you're mentioning, are they coming from the food and beverage side or are they coming from more the consumer and their habits? I, I think it's coming a bit, it's coming from both. I mean, you uh, the it, it's certainly come from a need to uh, provide consumers with a solution, which was, I would say, a cost efficient. <laughs> Let's be clear, yeah. during the pandemic, as you, as, as you said, we, we were trying to stop the bleeding. You, you had a, a massive outflow of cash um, coming out of hotels. You had a ton of refinancing occurring. And so what they had to do was really to try to bring staffing to a minimum. So to some degree, um, some of these solutions were imposed onto the consumer and created a usage almost by default and I think people people adopted that usage because they knew they were also helping the sector back, get back on its feet. So, so it's, it's one of those rare periods where we create a usage out of necessity. Uh, and of course, this usage then drives adoption. Uh, and a lot of this also allowed us to also understand how do one distribute our restaurants, right? Right now we're talking about taking orders, but if you kind of take the next step on digital, we've now also launched our own booking platform. Um, which allows us, which which will allow consumers to directly book on our restaurants. So at that point, you're talking about efficiency. You're reducing distribution costs. You're allowing restaurants, which have wonderful concepts, to be distributed at a much lower cost, mm -hmm. and it allows you to close the loop on experience. So from reservation all the way to booking, all the way to in dining experience, you start having a much stronger ownership and voice 
with the consumer. Do you think the customers' behaviours have evolved a lot since the pandemic? For example, um, are people looking at healthier foods or healthier lifestyles now? There's been a tremendous change. Um, I, I think there's been a couple of changes. Um, I, I think during the pandemic, there was a huge adoption, of course, of, uh, uh, of ordering platforms. I mean, uh, how many of us have not used Uber Eats or Deliveroo? Uh, Just or a few times. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes several times a day. Yeah, <laughs> um, we, we we really have seen that uh, swing back. I would I would think more into normality uh, in, in the last several months as people have rediscovered their freedom and and, and the need to really have uh, have contact with their friends and uh, and family. Uh, but what's what's been particularly telling is uh, that beyond, of course, the adoption of some of these uh, these online ordering behaviors, you've also seen the the consumer uh, behavior around specific. Uh, health uh, choices change. So we, we, we've we seen uh, significant changes and, and, and considerations improve uh, around wellness. So people are telling us that not only do they want to eat better, um, but they want to know uh, that the food is good and they want to know where the food comes from. So it kind of connects all the way back to, to CSR and the environment. So real short circuits are, are increasingly becoming critical. People are asking us where we're sourcing, whether we're sourcing locally. When we're not sourcing locally, that's certainly where we're making smart choices in terms of transport choices, uh, et cetera. People are asking us, of course, about uh, about um, some of the uh, nutritional value of some of the foods that they're eating. So we're seeing a significant increase, of course, of all the interest in our wellness resorts. So people are not only asking about short-circuit foods and essentially reducing carbon footprints. They're asking to eat better. And then, of course, they're asking, they're asking us to help them live better. And so the combination of, uh, you know, better for the environment, better for me, and, of course, uh, and of course better for my overall lifestyle is, is leading us to really redesign, in many cases, our hotels around value, uh, around wellness propositions, which are much more holistic from the room experience to the experiential experience in the hotel the food experience and to the services that we're offering, whether they're spas, plasso, or, or other types of treatments. That's really good to hear, actually. A good focus on personal wellness as well as sustainability. Definitely mm-hmm. what I'd like to hear. Um, a bit of a difficult question, but where do you see the industry in five years' time? <laughs> considering, we've had the, considering we've had the biggest shock in the industry's history in the last two years, uh, I'm, I'm extremely <laughs> positive about the industry. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my personal perspective. I'm 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 going to speak off the record, understanding and being recorded. But sure. uh, joking aside, I'll give you a bit of my perspective, so I don't put the entire weight of a core on this view. Um, I believe consumer habits are going to change quite substantially. I think people will be traveling a bit less. Um, they'll be traveling for longer periods because certainly they're conscious of their 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 choices of travel on the environment. So if you are going to make a long haul trip. Certainly don't make it a five-day trip. Make it a three-week trip. Uh, people will be a lot more uh, oriented towards discovering local practices and foods, um, which, which I think for years have almost, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say have disappeared, but you've had a number of chains adopting international foods in their hotels. And I think yeah. what's going to happen is you'll start seeing the local aspects really be reintroduced into the weave and, and the structure of, of uh, the food scene in hotels, certainly with a twist, you know, so I think you'll start seeing some fusion adoption of local foods and, and some of the propositions that exist in, um, in hotels. I, I, I also believe 
that you'll see massive changes in how uh, in the, in the level of responsibility of some of the massive hospitality players. You know, we've we've certainly made some big commitments on carbon footprint uh, neutrality uh, by 2050. We've made significant commitments on zero plastic. So I think the experience in the room will will be quite different. Uh, it'll be a lot more responsible, which means that necessarily you'll you'll see consumers uh, uh, have will have to adopt with us as we make some of these choices and we'll have to be uh, we'll have to be educators because of course not everyone is an uber responsible consumer so we'll have to help people that are potentially less informed on the value of making some of these some of these choices in 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 the next little bit uh, and i certainly really firmly believe that in the next 5 years you will see uh, a significant increase in the appeal of the sector the quality of uh, the services we provide and certainly the quality of our food and beverage and entertainment offerings. I, I believe that hotels are going to be a significant uh, community player. They will become uh, part of the, the social fabric of their neighborhoods. And, and if we do that, I think it's going to be a wonderful, uh, uh, it's going to be a wonderful experience to, to, to live through in the next five years because being a, com- a responsible community player, delivering quality uh, that is recognized locally and internationally is kind of how the magic happens. Wonderfully positive outlook, Darian. One final question for you, a personal one. What do you most like about your profession? Oh my gosh, it's, that, that is so easy. That is the <laughs> simplest question you've asked me. I, I, uh, I love the people. Um, uh, I said it, I, I think I said it the other day. I'd love to say it again. I, there's five Bs, but I can never remember them, but I'll just make it very, very simple. Um, it's one of the rare professions where people can be themselves. Uh, and I've been in many sectors. Um, uh, th- there aren't that many sectors where you can just leave home and be who you are and, and live your values and meet people every day and, 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 and connect with people from across the world and get back home and tell that story to all your friends and family. Uh, it's one of the most uh, exciting parts of my job. I, I get to meet people from all over the world all the time. Uh, they, they share their stories with me. And, and, uh, and it's one of the rare industries where we can react to feedback from the field in, in real time. So it's, uh, it's incredibly rewarding because they're, they're, it's a field where not only, not only can you grow and learn every day, but where you can connect your everyday reality to your professional life and your personal life. And it all comes together just uh, wonderfully. Fantastic. Well, that's just about all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Ian. My pleasure. Anytime, Alex. Rice Up are the official partners of the CL podcast. Rice Up, healthy and functional snacks. Let's catch up on more of the recent news, starting with the world of finance, which is showing heavy interest in agricultural and food technology. As an investment firm, ADM Capital Europe is reportedly seeking $800 million, 759 million euros to invest in the sector. The news follows the publication of figures indicating a wider upsurge in investments in the sector, with vertical farms and farm management software attracting significant amounts of finance. ADM Capital Europe is aiming to raise $200 million for its Cybus Enterprise Fund 2, which focuses on established agricultural and food technology startups. 
The other $600 million that the company is hoping to generate from investors is for Cybers Fund 2LP, which buys into firms in developed nations that operate in agricultural and food technology. In 2019, ADM Capital Europe raised $452 million for its first Cybers Fund and other investments. That's according to the Wall Street Journal newspaper. The Cybers Fund dates back to 2016 and was set up to make investments in a wide variety of agricultural and food technology interests. The aim is to make investments in firms with a demonstrable advantage in their chosen sector of the food chain, have a survivability bias in volatile markets by being cost competitive, and are working toward the highest environmental, social, and governance standards, according to ADM. The fundraising efforts by ADM Capital Europe have been reported shortly after the 2022 AgFunder Agri-Food Tech Investment Report. According to the report, $51.7 billion were invested by venture capitalist investors in agricultural and food technology last year, which is 85% up on 2020. In the UK, deals were valued at £1.3 billion, which AgFunder, an agricultural and food technology venture capital firm, said was up on the previous year's figure of £1.1 billion and the highest since it had begun recording data. The UK's figure puts it fifth in the global league tables behind Germany India, China and the USA, according to Agritech E, a UK business membership organisation that published details of the AgFunder report. Most of the investments in 2020 were in food technology, which accounted for $17.3 billion of the investment total, more than three times as much as for agricultural technology. According to the AgFunder report, more than one-third of food and agricultural technology was accounted for by online shopping or e-grocery. Large swathes of investment are going on into indoor agriculture, including vertical farming, which makes more efficient use of land, albeit at the cost of increased energy use. This sector is also seen as likely to grow because of concerns over food security. Plans to set up the world's first large-scale octopus farm in the Canary Islands have sparked concern over the welfare of the animals. Activists have argued that proposals for the facility, seen as a factory farm, should be abandoned because octopuses are intelligent creatures that are able to suffer. Among the concerns expressed are the risks of self-mutilation, cannibalism and high mortality in a system where the animals, solitary in the wild, are reared together. Octopuses, or octopi, are said to have as many as 500 million neurons or nerve cells, and their intelligence levels have been compared to those of dogs. According to reports, 65 million euros have already been invested by Nueva Pesconova in the planned farm at La Luz in Gran Canaria. It has yet to receive the go-ahead from the local authorities. Nueva Pesconova is said to have spent eight years developing a method to rear and reproduce the animals with incubating, hatching and rearing larvae having proved particularly difficult. Other organisations, including one in Mexico, are also trying to farm octopuses. Spain remains one of Europe's top three octopus suppliers but is said to be more heavily dependent on imports than it used to be. Morocco and Mauritania are Europe's other main suppliers. The proposal is to create the farm at the port of La Luz in Gran Canaria. The Centre for the Promotion of Imports from Developing Countries, the CBI, which is funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, says that the key European markets for octopus are in the Mediterranean area, with Spain, Italy and Portugal accounting for 80% of the continent's 150,000 tonne annual consumption. Global consumption runs at around 350,000 tonnes a year. 
Finally, food and beverage companies are facing increasing pressure from consumers and investors to cut back or pause operations in Russia as the war in Ukraine continues. More than 750 companies have publicly announced that they have voluntarily curtailed business in Russia, while some remain, according to Yale School of Management. At least 253 companies are making a clean break, essentially leaving behind no operational footprint. Nestle, Coca-Cola, Mars and Unilever are just some of the large firms to stop activities such as sales, advertising and investments in Russia. Some, like Carlsberg and Diageo, took action just days after the invasion. They suspended exports while others reacted weeks later. PepsiCo, Nestle and Danone are among firms to announce they are stopping all sales except for essential items such as baby formula and milk. Miles Wrigley, which produces Milky Way and M&Ms, confirmed it has suspended imports and exports in Russia, as well as new investments. The war could take a significant toll on revenues and brand perception within the food and beverage industry, depending on how companies react to the crisis. Buying habits, increasingly, are being influenced by the position of a company on issues such as Black Lives Matter or sustainability, and whether these stances mirror those of the shopper. This can include whether or not they match the sentiment among the shoppers, which, with regards to Ukraine, continues to oppose the conflict. Reports suggest that firms that have not reacted in line with consumer attitudes to the conflict could be hit in terms of sales and revenue. That's it for this edition of Food for Thought, the CL podcast. Feel free to like, share and comment on the podcasts and keep an eye on the CL newsroom with news for Europe, Asia and the Americas. For now, from me, David Addison, it's goodbye. Goodbye.